even if you put a grocery store in the community, it does not mean that all of a sudden the community's health is going to transform because the cultural ways of that particular community have been set by X, Y, and Z. Hey, it's Daniel. And I'm Damon. And welcome back to Climate Change Makers, presented by Elevate Energy. So for 20 years, Elevate Energy has been building equity through climate action by improving quality of life for underserved communities, helping them save money, improve their environment, and access opportunities in the workforce that will be a part of tackling climate change. As they move into the next decade of their work, they're looking to learn from their fellow community members who are equitably transforming the environmental legacy of their homes, neighborhoods, cities, and futures. And they brought the two of us in to help. We host a weekly radio show and podcast called Ergo here in Chicago, where we interview people reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. And we're excited to be doing that work around climate change and environmental justice with Elevate. So over these five episodes, we're talking with some of Illinois' most impactful environmental justice visionaries who have been working to build a more equitable and sustainable world and explore what ideas guide their work, which strategies have been effective, and what advice they have for Elevate Energy as the organization works to put people and the planet first in the fight to build equity through climate action. This episode's guest is Anton Seals Jr. Anton is the lead steward of Grow Greater Englewood, which is a social enterprise focused on building an equitable and resilient local food system that fosters protections of vacant land in divested communities and focuses on connecting those residents with community wealth-building opportunities. We had a really great dynamic conversation with Anton. You, you could definitely learn a lot. I really appreciated the way he was able to like have an expansive conversation. So it's not as much about like, here's what you need to do with the seed uh, as opposed to like what our relationship as human beings, particularly black people, our relationship to the seeds and the soil and the land and how some cultural pathologies and other systems uh, shape the way that, that our lives are forced into like these unhealthy norms. So just like with all other episodes, we start our conversation with Anton with a two part question. We asked him in this time, this moment, this pandemic, this season, how is the world treating him and how is he treating the world? Well, I think I'm treating the world the same way it's treating me with much gratitude and love. And I come from like uh, a space where I know that I'm a part of uh, uh, <laughs> the cosmic dust that was blown. And so when the sun is shining and the water's flowing so lavish, unfailing abundance always as the general principle. You know, the maker, the creator, God, however you want to call him and however you come to that space, him, her. Yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm the world is treating me really well right now in an interesting way because I'm with my family and we're spending time together. Just like with anything, you know, there's always that space of like, okay, now I need my own space too. So I think it's the same way for like, you know, um, you know, how the world's treating me and then I'm treating the world in the same way, you know. And been extremely busy in the last couple of weeks. Um, but when you like to do things and you're like trying to serve and help people and, you know, see that your your obligation is connected to more than just you. And that's just the way I was raised. Like, you know, it's a duty, but it's also an honor <laughs> to be able to have breath and life to do what I even do. So extreme gratitude. I was just going to say, you know, we also are free flow people. And so we can go all over the place. But before we do, we just want to make sure that we contextualize your work and make sure folks are like familiar 
uh, with your spaces and with your impact and you know this mission you say of, of serving and helping and being I'm trying to still do that myself you know put it in a container <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I understand how that, how that feels um, and so in you still attempting to figure out what that container is uh, let's try to to name us name it in process so tell us about that space and, and the other work that contextualizes so I mean my work is I say is in a couple of spaces one has been in urban ag food system and environmental justice work more so food system work around you know how do we create more access to you know nutrition so that connection to health and wellness um and even the the journey that everyone's on and, and connecting there. Uh, I'm a storyteller, so I do what you all did. <laughs> I don't do it as much anymore, but I'm a filmmaker, so I, I do documentary producing. I work with you know a lot of had a lot of you know fun and still do a lot of you know interesting projects when I can. Uh, I'm an organizer, so a lot of times I'm just volunteering to help you know, and I'm a relational. Organizer, so we organize around some of the long terms to transform relationships. You know that kind of repair space, the uh, underbelly of community organizing that's not always connected to just power. Like once you obtain power, so it's not so much campaign driven. You're not in opposition to the Linsky style, but it's definitely not the Linsky style of organizing. Like yeah. all of my work is always critically coming back to how do I you know increase the vitality. And the presence of African people, um, that's what was embedded in me and my role of, you know, dismantling systems and building stuff up and, you know, all different kinds of ways to do that. <laughs> um, and, you, and that ends up working. You end up working with a lot of different people. So I'm a, a convener, uh, a people builder, you know, and I try to and I um, always, you know, move with authenticity in every space, like what I can't do, I can't do. And when I'm wrong, I'm wrong. So leaving the arrogance and the ego um, at the door has also informed all of those different bodies of work. So let, let's ground it a little bit in, you know, one piece of that, which was what you, you said, kind of the, the undercurrent of the organizing piece is this, um, you know, relational healing and reclamation work and community and relationship building. That makes sense to me so much that that's kind of lives in relation to your work around food and land, because, uh, you know, that's one of the great mechanisms of understanding uh, the process of cultivation and the process of land reclamation is that it, you know, you learn those processes for the people around you also. So what brought you to that being an, a lens and a focus of your work, uh, that, that food system work? Um, I got in food system work through policy. So I worked for a member of Congress. Um, Bobby Rush for several years. It was a great learning experience. At that time, I was in my 30s, you know, so it's kind of like, you know, the perception of what things are versus the reality of what they mm -hmm. really are, you know, and, you know, living through that experience of being like, you know, they all are garbage, <laughs> you know, all these, you know, politicians, they don't know, they need to talk to the young people, you know what I mean? And then getting into the throes of it, you realize like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, that you can always bring something to the table, but there's really nothing new under the sun. And things end up a certain way because there has, you know, been this set of different rules and, and challenges. So it taught me so much. And food was the one thing that I was like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like you're taking cues from people coming to your office in DC and 
there should be a larger voice of people in our community who are, you know, growing food, who are talking about these issues that you should be paying attention to. Uh, and so that whole codification of the food deserts language, which we always hated, which was like manufactured was garbage, but then also understanding like this was an opportunity, you know, and, and that people were already latched onto it nationally around, you know, because it's real easy for people to be like, you live in a food desert, you don't have any food. Well, we do have food. It's just that the kind of foods that we had are like loaded with salt and sugar. And then it's disconnected from like, why is that the fact that, you know, in these poor communities? And so it, it, it divorces itself from the history of black people in the con context of like how they even ended up on the South Side or in the in Brooklyn or in Compton. You know what I mean? So it's the, the ongoing legacy of, you know, and I wouldn't even use the word like white supremacy anymore, but a white pathology. <laughs> well, I mean, because I don't even give them that kind of power. It's right, a pathology right, right. and aggression that exists in European culture that is a different framework than, I would say, even supremacy. Because I'm not even going to give them that they supreme over anything because the results have yielded disasters for the masses. So what are you supreme at? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Like people aren't living in more comfort and love. Yeah, people feel yeah. even more stressed and <laughs> under siege all over the globe, including white people. <laughs> including white, I mean, well, then we can right. unpack that. You know, right, that's right, all bullshit right. anyway, as yeah, well. Right. Like, right. you know, who white people are? Like, a gen two generations ago, you know, if you're from the eastern parts of Europe, you ain't part of the white. None of that. <laughs> so that's how I kind of came into this space around food. I had a really great mentor, um, LaDonna Redman, really introduced me to a lot of this stuff. And, you know, when I was working at the congressman's office around policy um, and from there, I kind of just, you know, I you know, had always been really uh, into medicinal herbs, which is, uh, you know, the irony of like cannabis and cleansing yourself, detoxing. I've studied under the Rasta faith for many years and, you know. And then that's when I was like, oh, I don't really have a faith, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, in that, in that sense. You know what I mean? I wasn't dogmatic. You know, I had long locks. People don't even recognize me half of my life now. It's like, Tom, what happened to your hair? Like, but I had, you know, you know, my antennas for a, a very long time. And that's before they were even kind of trace sheet. Because now it's like, you know, much more ease around it just being what you are naturally. Um, so all of those things were a confluence of like how I got into food and food as a metaphor to bring people together, to have these conversations and then to take action. And it's kind of just developed from there. So I, I, I really appreciate, um, in there a few different, like distinctions you were making around language. That's one of my, my favorite pastimes It's like, let's break down our vocabulary and our, our use of certain words and terms, um, uh, not only to be like correct uh but to unpack the structures that then shape our environments and our norms right so you know in the way that you are are rephrasing or or changing the relationship to language around white supremacy i think another thing you you mentioned was the food desert uh which is a very politicized very weighted term um and language that I think for folks who are not familiar uh, that I've heard in the last year or two emerged, I think is really much more effective is this notion of food apartheid and one that explicitly racializes it. Right. Um, but then also it speaks to the fact that things didn't just dry up. Right. It wasn't like it was a sandstorm that came and now we live in a does that's just like this, this natural occurrence. Right. Uh, I think that language of apartheid shows 
the political systems uh, and, and the social norms that allowed this inequity and inequality in relationship to nutrition and health at large. Um, and so with that, like kind of pushing back on that language, you talked about, you know, being in, in the congressman's office and learning policy and then that pushing you towards on the ground, uh, using food apartheid or, or other language that like speaks to the human dynamics of what's going on. What are some of the parts of the structure that folks would take for granted as to why we're living off corner stores with, with, with sugar and salt or why um, produce is not as accessible. I'm sorry, let me finish that sentence. <laughs> uh, I think it's easy in the same way we can say, hey, like black people just get locked up or, or, or black people just get laid off in the economy. It's like, no, there are specific decisions and procedures in play that perpetuate this dynamic. What has your work taught you about how that structure is working? Uh, so I think that structure exists for a reason. And I think there's, you know, oftentimes in this work, in any of our work is also, we make a lot of assumptions. We always have to make space, at least what I was trying to, to challenge our own assumptions about where we end up, the destination, you know, because it's not the destination. And especially like if you're talking about this whole food movement and like, like if you use apartheid, like that's politicizing food. And the biggest thing I've learned is like, if you build it, they will come it's inaccurate in so many ways. It's like, yeah, they do come, but it's not every, you're not solving the problem for black people. Right. And there's that thing of like who the black people are. And even one state is like millions of people, but you are then impacting people's choices. But we're all in this space, you know, fighting against convenience, which is part of the American brilliance in a way is to be able to say people can have all of these things, but then they can go home and turn on the TV and order a pizza. It's the human need to be like, I need to do what I need to do. So sometimes in our space, we divorce that, that rugged individualism, which we critique, but it is emerged because individuals like to be able to, you know, separate from the group. <laughs> Naturally. Some more than others. So all of that has been is the underbelly of the food system. And then how we think about what foods are for what and how cultures or values around certain foods were formed. So it's really interesting in the last, you know, 15, 20 years, how, you know, this whole like good food movement. Well, a lot of that black people was doing in the 60s. Right. And, and even before then, in the 40s, you go back as people were leaving the South, but you got to think about like people who were from an agrarian society were eating certain ways, but they were also working certain ways. And so I think that mesh of like, you know, what that looks like in a city like Chicago or Detroit, you know, and then here we come saying you should eat more kale and you should eat more collars. Well, people are like, I eat that. <laughs> You know, then you start talking about the preparation of it in terms of like how you're getting the nutritional value. You know, sugar and salt is an addictive. I mean, I'm not above this. And that's the other part is like you're not yeah. above this yourself as the messenger. Right. You know, I like the convenience of being able to roll and get a, a coffee and a roll when I want to because mm -hmm. it's behavioral is my point. Right. I mean, all of these things have come up with the COVID-19 um, pandemic is that it's just 
you know, glaring what we already knew. But I think there's a renewed interest around your own ability to be self-determining around what you can grow, what you can consume, you know, how because a lot of the diseases that the virus is, uh, you know, feasting on are chronic health diseases related to diet. So it's really so many layers to that one question you asked about, you know, how, what do we learn? Um, You know, even this whole piece around the supermarkets, that's why food deserts was never great. I totally get it. I won't even waste time into trying to correct people like it should be this or should be that because then I'm playing semantics. At the end of the day, it's around like, even if you put a grocery store in the community, it does not mean that all of a sudden the community's health is going to transform. Because the cultural ways of that particular community have been set by X, Y, and Z, right? And that comes from a logic of commodifying health again, right? The same way our healthcare system commodifies, the same way our diet, you know, this idea that you can sell someone well-being, it just doesn't play out in real life. You can sell everything to everybody. And I think that's the that's what we're dealing with is like, that's the speed of which America functions and m- most of the Western world functions is around the commodification of these things. Even if you don't have the wherewithal or sophistication enough to know that they have been commodified, even in our space we're we have been commodified, like we're the environment of the urban ag folks. And it's like, we're still trying to figure out we're fighting with the, the, just to like advance this kind of like we're fighting with this. I shouldn't say fight, yeah, we've been fighting with the city, right? <laughs> over umpteen years around access to vacant lots. And then people like come up with these ideas that we have been working on. But then you start to think about taking the idea and making it real. And then this one, I'm talking about organizers, because then that's the work. Because organizers, I find, you know, that this has been my experience. People like the, the, the high of the win, you know, in particular around direct action organizers. Like there's an end to the camp, but then there's like, well, who implements the transformation? <laughs> Once it's done, it just don't end right there. It has to, then that's where systems and institutions have to be built. And so even getting people onto the land, people who have who have the knowledge, who want to farm and have a farm business to grow more collards and greens or whatever, is the land ready to be accessible where you can grow on it? Right. Who protects it? How do you, you know, and what are you selling? And, and should it be free? Right. Because then who pays for your labor? How do you survive? Yeah. Right. And, and that's where I think like, uh, again, the the act of growing could serve as a model of like a reparative approach to that. Right. So if the soil is damaged, then you have before you can start growing. There are things that have to be done to even get back to that point. If, you know, people can't survive on, you know, if, if the the ability to live connected to their labor on that land isn't possible, then steps need to be taken in the meantime before things are, you know, decommodified. Like that that same kind of approach of how do we even get back to the point where we can start building to do that? It means a whole lot of repair before before we can start growing. And there's examples of them across the country of people who are doing this work. Things have not always been this particular way either. Mm-hmm. And there have been, you know, notable changes throughout the years around how people are even coming to, a, you know, space. So even if we're doing community gardens, you know, there's tons of community gardens out here. But some people are like, I'm not going to go. That's dirty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I ain't going to just eat. You know what I mean? Like, so you have this clash. And then like, so what do we and I, this is an open you know, conversation and an open question that, you know, is driving me is like, 
because it shifts. It's like, you know, as soon as I think you know something, you realize you don't know much at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that repetitive process of, you know, asking new questions, you know, you know certain things to be true at a certain point, though, too. Mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate the um, complexity you're bringing. So I'm going to try to paraphrase some things to like get into what, what I hear you saying, right, is like because we have had a short-sighted or maybe fragmented understanding of the issue, we also have a, a segmented imagination of solutions, right? So the idea of just like bring a grocery store to the air quote food desert will fix the problem is just not true. Um, it is deeper politically and socially, but also that sociopolitical structure has had cultural results that affect psychology and behavior. And so the thing that you said that's that's really resonates for me is we have to acknowledge these substances as, as addictive substances, right? And so we're dealing with a, an issue of, of like addiction to these things that, that are poisonous and killing us. Um, and what I heard you just say is like system building and institution building is the pathway towards starting to do some of this transformation. Uh, and so I want to go back to that idea because that resonates with me because, you know, you can hear the Instagram vegan or the political activist who's like, you know, we are supporting the, this animal agriculture system that is destroying our planet and our bodies. And it's like, that resonates for me. I don't want to kill things. Uh, I don't want to be a part of like greenhouse gas, but I'm addicted to this shit. Like, right. Like if I go a day without it, I feel a way. And I don't hear the Dr. Sabies of the, of the world or the, you know. The, well, there's like, room. I think there's yeah. room for that too. I think that's the question is like in our space around food, that's where we have been, we, we can be a little bit dogmatic and elitist in a little bit. You know what I mean? How how we think we are dictating diet. It's treating diet like a commodity, right? Like it's saying like, you know, in, in the same way you could say like, don't buy Nike, buy something that's home, right? Like that's not the same as don't eat something that your body has become dependent upon or used to or that you are addicted to, right? Like you wouldn't tell a, an opioid user like, hey, just don't use opiates tomorrow, right? Uh, there's obviously like processes and resources and healing that has to happen. And so how do I get from once I accept I shouldn't be eating these things? How do I help myself and my people like heal or, or recover would be the, the, the language, right? For using addiction. Like what is the path towards recovery? Well, one is identifying what the, you know, what you're recovering from. And I think at the root of it is, you know, values around how you see yourself in society, your value itself. And I think that's, you know, a very painful thing sometimes to un- to unwrap. And food, like other things, become a way to numb some of those questions, to even have to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. So the, the pathways to some of this is people being able to return to, you know, practices that help create ease in the body um, and also fight the disease in the body. Right. And I mean, that's the the beauty of it, that people are coming to that space. And then you juxtaposition that against like, you know, you realize that no one is ever really, you know, satisfied with anything. And I think I see that a lot with like in our food paths too, is like, there's no one simple answer and that there's always this um, struggle, <laughs> you know. So I would say, yeah, we were trying to present people with like better choices and options around what they can do and how they can integrate these things in there. But a lot of times people are doing that 
And so maybe, you know, where the gap is now, where we, we see there's some rumors, like if you're eating collards, like, you know, understanding like, yeah, when you eat them raw, they provide even more nutrition to combat said heart problems or heart disease issues because they have, you know, you know, the particles that are cleaning your blood vessels, you know, um, but you wouldn't know that, you know what I mean? So it's also an opportunity to bring a level of knowledge that's already existing in many communities. So it's just around us finding those and amplifying some of those so people can, you know, come into it. Even for me personally, like, you know, I enjoy food, but at the same time, you know what I mean? I can't preach to people like, so I don't try to preach to people. I'm like, I try to meet people where they are and that you can integrate X. Now, some people will be able to transform their diet to a complete plant-based diet. And then there's, I think the larger population is like, I want to be able to choose what I want, <laughs> right? And consume. And I think underneath that is, you know, again, another pathology around us being able to want what we want and have what we want when we want it. Again, that commodification and the individualism that we were talking about before. That's correct. And so when you start talking about addictions, whether it be to, you know, these different substances, they're doing something to feed something there. Right. And I think in our community, for many people, it's around like, what the fuck does it matter? Hmm. You know, and I've seen that part grow, you know, coming from youth. Culture. I'm the hip hop generation seeing like our children and now they children because now I'm not the youth anymore. I'm youthful, but I'm not the youth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like nobody's talking about I could get away with it. If people don't, you know. It's a good sleep day, and you know what I'm saying? I'm looking fresh and like it look like I'm in my 30s or something. But I'm damn near a 50-year-old man. And I'm looking around like, damn, the same conversation, what I heard, you know, 30 years ago is the same thing I'm hearing right now. What I see now increasing is, and I think it's globally, it's just like, you know, what do I matter? Mm. As an existential piece as well. But I think that's also driving choices because it don't matter. You know what I mean? Like you're going to die anyway, kind of mentality. Um, and I think that also is underneath like these choices of addiction and what people are choosing. It's like a nihilism coupled with a disillusionment, right? Why do the work of the shift when I can see that the structures are closing in all the time anyway? And then you have people who, are, you know, who who are our stars, the vanguard, who are fighting to show ways against that. So that's why the testimonies are so powerful. Yeah. That I just analogy to that, it makes me think of like the, the tropes in like a um a, an under-resourced school uh of you know if I've been in this community and like my uncles or my mama or you know or you know three or four family members who are now entered into adulthood have come through this system and what you tell me is this system is supposed to prepare me for the world but I've seen it not do that right like I've seen people go through and be on the honor roll or whatever and still be in the same experience with us how then are you going to tell me that like doing my homework is going to say change my circumstances like right so at the end of the day it's like fuck it i'm not having to do it because there, there is no tangible example or reward the the, the rest of the and the, for some i think that you know for the majority of people they kind of conform it's just like the, the the trope of like you know the inner city you know or the ghetto like, you know, everybody's gang banging. It's like, that's not true. <laughs> no, it's not true. 
that is not true at all. Like what, you know, but because that story has been able to be repeated, you know, where the folklore then turns into mythology and then it becomes the actual pathos that people believe that in order to be ghetto, these are the requirements. When in fact, the majority of it is like being from the ghetto means you're one of the brightest stars out here, right? That you've seen and have had so much, many kind of diverse influences that you can do any move anywhere around the world. I mean, that's what I think about when I think about the South side of Chicago and I think about the work, like we the baddest mofos out here, right? Those contexts are usually lost because they, they dumb it all the way down. And like we sitting on the, you know, on the side trying to get a, a some drinking some, some weed without understanding the subtext. Like we using weed to elevate and we are thinking about concepts and forms. But that's what, who we are as African people who survive and still live with this burden of proving our humanity. And I think all of that's still connected back to like food, you know, using food as medicine and seeing like those people now it's become much more of an industry. But that a lot of stuff started in the black community and in indigenous communities because there were no other alternatives. So to that point, um, in the countering of a lot of these myths, what are the truths around like historical lineage in relation to food uh, that you want to just hold to as a person uh, and to like in your work and in that relational work? What are the, the true stories <laughs> that you that you want people to know as a tool for that transformation? That everything is already abundance. There's enough for everyone. That's number one. So I think, you know, we didn't get a chance. I know we're crisscrossing across a lot of pieces and I, I pre-warned you, I probably wasn't as like... Succinct. We're a fan of a crisscross. No, You're we good. Do. <laughs> My shorts are on backwards right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, what day is it? Is it Tuesday? It's Groundhog Friday, man. Um, but I think, you know, in order to think, think about like real transformational, like, you know, the earth is created that there's enough abundance out there to heal yourself. Um, there's practices in which you can, you know, balance yourself. Um, so there are things you have to just connect into them. And I think that there's always been a presence of that in our communities in particular that aren't necessarily always fringe as well. I think narrative is so powerful. Mm-hmm. And all I was offering to the audience today is that I've lived a, a season enough to see how things have been resold. And because it's a cultural piece, because someone manipulated the value. Right. And so the transformation isn't about like, I'm going to do and take care of more. It's only become even more rugged individualism and like what I'm able to obtain. You know what I mean? And I got what? You know what I mean? And that's been a commodity. You look at like our music, you know, and I remember Baba Phil Quran talking about how important, like when you talk about transformational and he was like, you know, you got to understand who you are. And like, you know, for black people in particular, we hear we feel, we move with the sound of the beat, of the drum. It's our lifeblood. It's what sustained us. And he was like, it's interesting that that has been the thing that has been able to manifest itself. And, and it's like the tools gotten in the hands of the wrong people. Because hmm. now we're dealing with a deluge of, you know, sound that amplifies angst. Hmm. Our world is so much more like, eh. You know, and you can just hear it in the sound. And that's been retold. Now, you know, now everybody, like, hip-hop is, like, the standard. Like, if I wasn't rapping, I'd have been out here killing it. Like, that becomes the the standard trope 
that most people accept as a truth. Yeah. Um, and so I think that th- those, you know, ways that we have to think about transformation and particularly around food, we have to control that. So I'll just say this is like it's very simple. Like in the food system world is like where are most of the vacant lots at in this city. Right. South and West. South and West side. So as a black man in this space talking about land reclamation, I don't allow the allies to come step three heads a step of the black person that's sitting on the stoop around the street who won't learn how to do this. They should have access to it first. Right. So that's not a popular belief <laughs> because they're like, we're trying to service. We should be able to. And I'm like, I, I ain't with the colonist uh, playbook. Mm. You're not, not looking for missionaries. Well, it will. It, it's the it's the intention that I have access to because I'm serving you. But then you also have control. Right. And then the, you have the land. And our point is that our people should be able to access that land first to service themselves and their networks first in our communities. Because the inverse is not true. You're not finna just pop up as a black person in a white community and start farming and be like, I'm going to feed (laughs) y'all. Right. It's laughable. But in their minds, it's like it's totally cool to come do that because y'all need us. Right. Right, right. And that's the kind of the highlight of a pathology I'm talking about. And for some of us, we like who are, you know, who who understand history and like, I don't need you to do. First of all, you ain't the teacher. (laughs) Let's just start there. You know, but you have to be able to have that kind and you have to do it in a way that it doesn't mean that you're bad as a person. Or that your color discounts you as an individual. It offers an opportunity for us to have that dialogue of where I'm coming from. And my job is to protect my community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, With that, I I really want to go into like the spatial context, right? Because we could talk about land reclamation, soil, food systems at large, right? But I think there's something specific, particularly in this this context of this transformation you're talking about, about agriculture in the urban landscape. Uh, and that's really getting to, I think, the, the nuance or the complication that you're just talking about, about, you know, I was, you know, I know I'm familiar with like the, um, the ecosystem you're talking about. And I think they are, you know, we are discussing mostly well-intended people uh, who are not being abusive, right, in like their day-to-day actions for the most part in the f- folks that I've seen. Uh, but we are talking about the city landscape and we like got to be historical about it of the city was this artificial oasis of escape from genocidal Southern apartheid um, that then disrupted an agrarian society and culture that sustained us through enslavement, uh, but also connected us to our ancestral roots, uh, but then also provided subsistence as well as like healthy physical activity, right? So now we're in this new space and like the city is designed to be the anti-farm, right? The city is designed to be the great concrete space and and not to be green. And so we are then clashing in this space, right? So we are coming here um, historically as escaping persecution, which other groups have come to this space with that same type of, you know, history or mythology, uh, but obviously with a, with a different relationship to the oppression in this land. And so I want to get urban agriculture out of this like slideshow of, hey, this is a good thing to do um, and get it more into like, the nuts and bolts of the game of you're saying we need this control 
right? And so what does that control look like? What are the struggles that come with that control uh, in relationship to like anybody or, you know, like a, a, a well-meaning liberal finance resource by a foundation, you know, advocate who's coming or ally who's coming, uh, who then has this control? What are the the mechanics of that connected to that longer history of like, you know, relationship to agriculture in the city space? Because uh, I don't think those type of things happen everywhere. I don't know, man. That's a hard <laughs> question, man. Damn, you didn't came with a... That's like basically like we, we, we go back to then talking about some segregationist... I'm down. You know, elements of like, just, just close the... Like, here go the curtain and like, let me see your ID. It often feels that way. But I would say that we're dealing with, you know, generational kind of mechanics that have been really harmful to our community. But one of the things that we've been working on is to push the city, advocate to the city to have a a framework in which they are able to say, this is how, you know, in your community, you can access the land and here's the resource to do it. Right. So like the example would be like the dollar lot program. If you can buy a dollar, you know, get the lot for a buck. The issue is in that sense is that there's no separate playbook for the people who have been impacted differently than it is. So the city usually likes in most places, they like a one size fits all. And this is what happens in our, you know, like why we always have to end up like compromising. White culture is like, why should I give up anything? There's the belief that they, that everyone's had the same access to opportunity. And that's, that's a fundamental, you know, bullshit belief, but I mean, they, people believe it. You know, when you start talking about reparations, like you owe me, like you got paid off of my labor. And it so it doesn't play out in terms of like creating ways for us to really marshal policies that would, you know, deliver what you're talking about to our communities, not in the fullest sense. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you're often at the fringe of the conversation because at the core of the conversation, the people who are already in those spaces who want to maintain something. And so that's where, you know, all the direct action, the organizing, like, you know, there's nothing else left to but to shut your down. So that's just on the political front, but it's on the food front, the political act of like feeding your family nutritious foods, finding other ways to, you know, incorporate that into, you know, to raise the vibrancy. And and, and that takes work because now you're also fighting against the, and this is something we're learning, up, the ease of like somebody has to prepare it. Somebody has to be focused. Somebody got to do the dishes, but it is possible, Right. And so we have to always remember that these things are possible. They're not impossible. Because when there's more of those people who are demanding changes from a system, um, it's just like what we're going through now. This is a transformative opportunity. Like what will happen post this pandemic? When people say that they're committed to equity or racial equity lens, then I'm damn near going to push you all the way to the edge of that equity, the reparations, to reparations land. That's where you go. <laughs> Just cut them off in traffic. That's at the end of the, the, the intersection. You get off on reparation. Go straight. Exit, you go on exit seven, exit nine. We are, we right oh, here. That's great. Getting off on Saturday night. Like that's because what else is left? What else do we have to prove at this point that I'm dying? Right. But there in lies like I there's some who care. But what I would say is that there, uh, the reason that there's also this tension, because there's a lot of people who don't give up. Right. And they don't want to say that publicly, but they don't give up. And sometimes when you're surrounded by people who do, you kind of like 
that that can kind of fall by the wayside and you assume at least some sort of intention, some sort of thought. But yeah, you're right. A lot of people just don't give a fuck. <laughs> and a lot of those people aren't people I'm hanging around right. with. Right. You know what I mean? They're probably more like your cousins than they my cousins. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because they occupying these spaces. They right. like, what do they want now? Like, what did we, we already gave you some. What, what, uh, you know, it's an, it's an, it's, it's an annoyance. Right. But there's so much surplus. But the issue is just like what's come up with this. But there's people who are hoarding the surplus. Right. For their own benefit. That's what part of it, I think, that will potentially transform because the systems that we've created haven't been working. Right. But, or I would say, they work in a way, of course, like they were intended, but they definitely ain't working for our, our black asses. You know, every time you got something, it's like, damn, the black people 12 times, you know, every, like, right. well, I'm, sometimes companies me like, what else, what, what are we explaining here? Like, what manual are you looking at that I'm not seeing? They're just not looking at a manual. Because everything I'm from health, education, you're like, well, I mean, cut this, listen, cut the check, stop playing games. You know, I, I don't want to say all the crazy, like, off the, but like, man, basically, let me get back on the boat and let me get away from here. Sometimes the feeling, okay? And, and then we could talk. <laughs> then we could talk. When I'm on, I'm gone. Then we, then we, we can hop on Zoom then. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I think that under, under, underneath all of this is that feeling of like, I'd rather just not even deal. Yeah. And I know that that's a real motivator for so many people. Mm. because if those of us who are sticking around to fight feel that tension, I know people like they've blown the cinder, man. They're like, man, I ain't got time for this. Right. Let me just escape into my own little bubble. And those are people you trying to work. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I'm talking about it, it's, it is a struggle. You know, it is those, those tensions, but the, the, the boldness of when we do come together and we're able to collectively think and challenge and love on each other is even more powerful because then there's the feeling of like what can be done right. and what is done is yielded from that. Even if they're not involved, people see it, you know, they see it. Yeah. Last question for you. You know, part of the, part of the goal of this project is to see from your, from your work and from your wisdom, what, elevate energy and then other folks kind of in that nonprofit world of people doing this well-intentioned work, what kind of lessons they can be learning? Uh, like what are the pieces that they should be factoring in at every point of decision-making uh, that isn't happening? So just want to, before we get out of here, give the opening for you to say like, you know, what should those folks in that position be doing that they're not already doing or thinking that they're not already thinking? Can I jump in on that question? Just, sure. just like the idea of like literally someone who's hearing this has listened to the whole thing, right? And so there's like there is some point of of agreement. So it's more of like we're, now that we you've heard this and you uh, and you can accept what is like the push uh, for folks who who understand or at least accept the complicated dynamics you've been sharing. Yeah, I, and I hope that they're able to make some sense out of the uh, <laughs> the gumbo I served. Well, they still here. It was delicious. <laughs> well, that's good. That's a good uh, serving the gumbo. Then, um, this the cornbread. Say, it was some cornbread, man. Some hot water cornbread. You need some hot water cornbread to make it right. Um, I think, um, I, you know, I think groups like Elevate and and um, 
which they have been doing is listening. You know, you have to be able to really listen and hear, um, co- you know, this whole sense of co-creation together. But, you know, they're charged with a, a particular task and it could be as, 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 you know, small as like, well, you know, in the budget, like how many black vendors do you have? Who are you sourcing from? Are you putting your money where your mouth is? I think that's always going to come back to like across the board. It shouldn't be like a chore. It should be more like at the beginning, these questions around if we're going to present ourselves as being concerned about the energy and consumption and the livelihood of said communities, here are the certain set of things that we should look at ourselves first in order to do that. Mm. Right. I think that's always a really healthy place to start to look around. But I do think that those are, you know, some fundamental steps that have to be taken from the beginning if you think about like elevate and then what they're doing now, which is kind of trying to reach out to different voices, trying things and not being afraid to, I, you know, because I, I know there's certain parts in community where elevate energy is looked at with a, you know, with a long eye. So I think it has to be really clear, like, well, what are, are you guys going to be putting solo on there? You're educating people. So the on the ground kind of presence of the organization is not familiar. So they need to think about the kind of partners they have to build for the execution or the implementation of whatever the resource is. And that resource will help make, you know, people's lives better. That's why the money was given. And that often means that you're giving away power to. Folks, Anton Seals Jr. That was a good one. We, we went there. We definitely did. Uh, so much thanks to Anton for chopping it up with us in the middle of this crazy time. I know he had uh, many meetings and many children to be attending to at the exact same time. Um, so we really appreciate him chopping it up with us. You can find out more about Grow Greater Englewood at growgreater.org. You can also find out about his work with South Shore Works at southshoreworks.org. And just look at his website and social media for all the other many, many jobs that he does. You can, of course, find out more about Elevate Energy's 20th anniversary campaign at elevateenergy.org. Make sure you subscribe, comment, like, and review the Climate Change Makers podcast and support their work as they step into this 20th year. We'll be back next month with another conversation showcasing the climate change makers reshaping our city, world, and climate for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Rosie. Daniel. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous Uh earlier, but Mm -hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. And I'm staring directly (laughs) into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like a taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? 
Sounds like the Overcast app. Beow, beow, beow. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the App Store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully non-committal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye.